Hello, I'm Thomas, and you're listening to the Right on Track podcast. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are, and welcome to episode number 61 of the Right on Track podcast. My name is Em, and I will be your anchor for today's episode. In today's episode, you'll hear from Connor Jonas and Tom Parry in the reviews. Tom Denham goes exploring in Loco Nation. And Lachlan's right at home in the model train corner. First up is the reviews, where Connor and Parry take a look at Series 8 with Thomas and the Tuba and Percy's new whistle. Hello, you're here in the reviews with Connor. And Parry. And today we are starting off with Series 8, which was a real turning point in the show. Very much was. And before we get into it, Connor, I can't believe we're here, honestly. I mean, we are up to reviewing the 8th series of Thomas and Friends. It's changed companies. It has changed companies now. It's gone from being part of Britt Allcroft's production firm to Hit Entertainment, who, of course, are best known for producing television programs such as Bob the Builder and many others, which I can't remember the name of. Fireman Sam? That wasn't... Was that them, really? I I, I think it was. We'll see. Anyways... (laughs) And cut, no. Um, <laughs> series 8, so many changes occurred for it. Uh, it started airing in August of 2004. However, it was already partially released on VHS and DVD a few months earlier in the UK. Mm. So many new changes came with Series 8. Uh, Paul Larson and Abby Grant were the new script editors and head writers. Simon Spencer's first series as a producer and showrunner uh, Sam Barlow joined the team as a story executive, and Steve Asquith is now like the lead director, his first time since his work for Jack and the Soda Construction Company. Mm. And what I feel is most noticeable in the episodes is that this is the first series where Robert Hartshorn is composing mu- music for the UK and international versions instead of just the US releases. Mm-hmm. And it is noticeable that <laughs> aside from yeah the visual changes, the audio is probably the most notable change because, of course, each and every episode, television episode of Thomas and Friends now starts with that infuriating theme <laughs> song. Oh. I can only listen to that intro like once and then need to skip it each and every time. And it's a very long intro. There's now a new 10-minute runtime for the stories. Seven and a half minutes is actual story. The remaining two and a half minutes is the opening sequence, the credits, and the engine roll call. Ah, it's annoying. It's annoying. That's the word I was looking for, Connor. It is annoying. And obnoxious, I would say, as well. Like Obnoxious? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Music aside, the new visuals associating it are really beautiful Mm, no disagree hard disagree no 
I think that the set decoration of the earlier series, the David Mittenhelm series, are well above what we're seeing here. Because this version of Sodor, it feels very basic, very rudimentary. It's not very appealing. Whereas if you look at the, not just the set design, but also the backgrounds and the props and everything else, with the previous seven series, you know, it looks like a fully functioning railway. It looks like a bustling island. It actually looks like somewhere which requires a huge railway. Whereas here, it's kind of like watching Thomas and the Magic Railroad. It, it just... There, there's very little people. That, that, that's it. There's almost no life. Earlier series of the show felt like a functioning steam railway in the 40s, 50s. Meanwhile, from Series 8, maybe a bit of Series 7 onwards, it very much feels like a heritage railway in operation. Mm. Because whilst there are works going on, it is very picturesque the whole way, and there doesn't seem to be much, I would say, urgency to the trains. It doesn't feel like a business anymore no that's very true i mean even in the characterization of the engines they don't seem to be hard workers like they are in say series five like remember how we were discussing in series five how it felt like the railway was well established and the characters had matured and all that yeah it feels like it's gone backwards with series eight you know it's almost the engines are almost juvenile, not only in the way they approach work, but in the way they speak about it and speak to each other. Could it be that Series 8 takes place at some point between, like, Series 3 or 4? Oh, even earlier than that. Even earlier? <laughs> Honestly, it feels like, the, especially, we'll get to this, obviously, later in the review, but especially when you hear Percy speak, it sounds like he's a new arrival on the railway. That's a fair note. The, the naive Percy hmm. rears its head. Well, I think another one of the noticeable changes is that they now film the series at 50 frames per second rather than the, the 24 to 30. So you can tell that it's that fast a frame rate because the movement of the engines, it looks more akin to what we as humans see in real life. But of course, because of course the human eye perceives things at 50 frames per second. But I also feel that they've taken advantage of the higher frame rate because, of course, it would air at a slightly different frame rate as well. Maybe a bit of a slower one. And they've really taken advantage of it because a lot of the accidents we see are now in slow motion. And, and on, on the subject of being slow, like the, the stories themselves are paced really slowly and there's a lot of padding like there's a particular scene in uh one of the future stories we're going to review where harvey the crane engine is leaving a scene and it sort of lingers on that shot for way <laughs> way way longer than it needs to it's just like come on cut 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 come on so next scene come on we don't need to see this you know at, at times it moves so slowly like you know, you feel like you're part of this really dull and dreary parade. Like, I've seen funeral processions that move faster than some of these episodes, right? <laughs> fair, fair. Um, I, I feel an explanation for it. 
would be because of this longer runtime. They they were perhaps on the writing table in series seven, and when they were given the longer runtime, well, now they had to pad these out. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair point, Connor. And with that, shall we move on to the review? Yes, indeed we shall. We have discussed anything, so let's move on to our first story of Series 8, which is Thomas and the Tuba. And in the clip you're about to hear, Thomas has just arrived at Maithwaite Station, but he's forgotten one very important passenger. Thomas steamed off to Maithwaite Station. And the brass band assembled on the platform. Suddenly, the band leader cried out. Where is the tuba player? He wailed. We cannot play without him. No one knew where the tuba player was. I'm sorry, sir, gasped Thomas. I must have left him behind. First, it was his passengers and his train. Then it was his guard. Now it's a tuba player. Of course, Thomas isn't delivering band members for no reason. It's actually a very special day on Sodor, Parry. Mm, it is. It is. It is the Lady Hat's birthday, and as we know from Series 5, the, the characters all take this day very seriously, especially Sir Topham. Yeah, uh, Sir Topham Hat has spared no expense. Decorations, food, activity, events, including a brass band from the mainland. Parry, would you like to give a, a, a brief synopsis as to this episode? I think we've already done it, Connor. I mean, it's, it's simply that Lady Hat's birthday party is happening, and there is going to be a brass band who's playing at her birthday party. Uh, and you said they were from the mainland, Connor. Are you sure they're from the mainland? Uh, according to the story, Michael Angelus, they are from the mainland. Well, that's interesting because they've got SB, those initials written on their cap. So you would assume that stands for Sodor Brass. That is a very good point. And the thing is, we have seen the same brass band members on use before that we have that look exactly the same could it be that sodor always just gets the same brass band in over from the mainland each time they need it and it just so happens that it comes from splow <laughs> splow <laughs> that's not a place connor i'm fairly sure it's or, or splow Slough, I think you're thinking of. No, no, I'm thinking of the one in Wales that's spelt like splot. Hmm. I've no idea what you're talking about. I'm sure if our good friend Matthew Bellis were here, he'd be able to sort us out straight. And hello, Matthew, if you're listening as well. The most basic explanation is that they simply reused the props from the Series 7 story Edward's Brass Band. Yes. So, Thomas goes to Napford Station, he collects the passengers, well, he thinks he collects all the passengers, but he leaves the tuba player behind, presumably because he's so excited, and then as he gets to Mayfleet, he discovers his mistake, as we heard in the clip, and it's up to him to now retrace his steps, and, well, steps, figuratively speaking, of course, because he doesn't have feet, and try to locate the tuba player. In the meantime, though, the tuba player is actually taking a ride with a selection of road vehicles, characters we all know and love, in order to make his way back to the party. Mm. And the first of those characters, of course, being Bertie the Bus. 
Bertie DeBus. Now, I, I wanted to raise this as well before I get back into summarising the story. Uh, this was a story that I saw on a Thomas and Friends DVD, All Aboard for the Steam Team, and this was the second story from that set, I believe, and I remember being absolutely gobsmacked when I saw Bertie's eyes move, because this, for me, was the first instance of Bertie's eyes moving. I was like, whoa, how did they do that? I wasn't expecting to see that. The, the first time we did see the move was in Three Cheers for Thomas, the last episode of Series 7, the last episode uh, that was reviewed. I haven't seen that particular story before seeing this one. so It's very new. Yeah, it is. And as well as that, I don't know whether you've noticed, Connor, but they've actually edited this particular scene with Bertie over time because I recall on the original DVD release, Bertie's eyes just moved in one direction back and forth, whereas here they sort of bounce around a little bit. When I, when I say here, I mean in the most recent DVD releases. On the note of editing and, and filmography... I would say this episode does really well is its camera panning. Mm, I I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah, the camera work in this is actually pretty neat. When Thomas first rushes back to Knapford to try and find the tuba player, he goes over a bridge and then the camera pans down to the tuba player at a bus stop and then Bertie pulling up. And it's brilliant. Then later on, as Thomas is rushing underneath a different bridge... It then moves upwards and shows Bertie leaving the tuba player behind at a different bus stop. And then immediately after that, Elizabeth arrives. Yes. So, yeah, of course, coming back to the story. Now, we've met Bertie and then it's Elizabeth who is the next person to give the tuba player a lift. And rather than getting into Elizabeth's cab, he opts to get into her flatbed at the back of her. Well, it's not really a flatbed. What is it? It's a, like a tippy... Tray. Tray, cargo area. Yeah. Like, I, I've spoken about occupational health and safety before. <laughs> but but I feel this is taking it a bit too far. He's standing unsecured in the open back of a moving vehicle. Yes, he is. Now, I've been on a farm in the back of a ute, and I can say unequivocally that... It is not safe and it is not comfortable to just be standing on the back of a ute. You need some form of support, right? Furthermore, he's playing his tuba in the process. Yeah, like if any if any normal person were playing their tuba on the back of a ute, they'd be tipping off, I would imagine. And tubers, they're not easy things to balance with. They're definitely not. No, they're very heavy. My sister plays one. You know, it's three quarters of the size she is. They're enormous. Despite all of this, he still manages to play and keep his balance. Bravo to the tuba player. And we get another brilliant panning shot where we see Thomas round a few bends and go over a level crossing. And and as he moves by, reveals Elizabeth and the tuba player there. It's brilliant camera work in this episode. I love it. Mm, I mean, it's not quite Citizen Kane, but, you know, it, it is... Oh, no, no, it not is yet. It is pretty neat. Not yet. But... <laughs> not yet, Connor, wow. Not, 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 not yet. Uh, I, I've got high hopes for Series 8. Okay. Well, now, um, yes, returning to the story, though, uh, Elizabeth drops off the tuba player at another point, and from there he climbs aboard Trevor. 
Our old friend the traction engine. Yes, returning however he doesn't speak. No, he does not speak. And which is sadly. <laughs> yes, which will be a common theme for this particular character. But anyhow, mm. as the tube player is taking a ride with Trevor, Thomas is so busy looking for the tuba player that he happens to run into Percy and two trucks of bunting. With a little bit of slow motion, they fly up in the air and then cover it all around. And then Harvey comes along to help clear up the damage. And he imparts some advice on Thomas Goak. If he's a tuba player, why don't you stay quiet and listen for a tuba? And lo and behold, Thomas does that and comes across Trevor and the tuba player. And the tuba player gets on board and they run off to the festivities. Um, Harvey doesn't quite say that, Connor. What does he say exactly? He says that if he's a tuba player, he might be playing the tuba. Yes, and I feel that would imply to be quiet and look or listen for a tuba. Yeah, implied, Connor. You're, you're not directly quoting Harvey here. This is the second time the solution to an episode has been listen for the tuba player. More or less, because remember back again to Edward's Brass Band, how they played a warning tune, and that was how Edward came to their rescue. Whereas here, the tuba player is not so much singing out a tune as he is warming up, more or less. The solution is listen for the tuba player, and then the story is solved. That's it, yeah. So once (laughs) Thomas hears the tuba player, picks him up, takes him to... Lady Hat's birthday party, and there we are. End of story. Mm. That's it. I, I would like to note, though, because this is the first crash we see mm-hmm. of Series 8, okay? And it's a pretty uh, good one, I have to admit. Yeah, it, it's not overly flashy, but it's got just enough slow motion and the colourful bunting flying everywhere is amazing. And, of course, you get the destruction of that truck as well. Mm. But I feel it's unnecessary. Well, no, I do agree with you there. It's like, why did he need to crash into the truck and why do we need that extra level of drama? Like, yeah. The only purpose the crash served was for Harvey to give some advice to Thomas. Well, and that's a job... This this is another one of those Christopher Audrey-isms we see in the television series, right? This was a role which could have belonged to anybody. It didn't need to be Harvey and they didn't need to be... Or rather, there didn't need to be an accident for it to happen. Like, Thomas could have simply stopped at Wellsworth Station, for instance, and talked to Edward. Or he could have talked to Percy. He could have talked to literally any other character and said, I can't find a tuba player. And their solution would be, well, if he's a tuba player, wouldn't he be playing the tuba? So listen for a tuba. He could have spoken to Harvey, but without an accident. That as well, yes. But the point I'm making is it didn't need to be Harvey, right? It could have been any character. There's only one explanation for how Thomas and Percy were on the same track going opposite directions. Uh, That is... Yes, there is. All together now, people. The Signalman! Yes. (laughs) As much grief we give the Signalman on Sodor, it is nice to see that it is their incompetence that causes the accidents. It's, It's a nice consistency across the entire era of the show it's like a security blanket really one of one of the few certainties of life you know water is wet sun rises in the east signalman calls all the problems on sodor but with all that said and done 
I think we should move on to the ratings. You know, it's a pretty tepid Thomas story. I mean, coming off the high the last seven seasons or so of the program, you know, this feels... I wanted more, Connor, is what I'm saying. I wanted more. And as well as that, I don't think they do enough with the tuba. Every time we hear the tuba play, it's just the tuba player doing scales or you know chords or whatever tuba players play. But they could have had some fun with this. Like, whenever there was a gag or a joke or whenever something hilarious happened, they could have used the tuba going wah, wah, or something like that, you know? As you said, or as we said as well earlier in the review, we've seen this story before, Edward's Brass Band, and it's just a more or less a rehashed version of that. So for me, this one is getting a 3 out of 10. Mmm... Listen, I'm I'm going to give it the benefit of a doubt this episode because it is sort of the start. It's a new company. This story may have been one that needed to be artificially extended for from series seven episodes. I'm going to give it a five out of ten. It has got all the elements of what could be a good story. It just fails to hit the mark on a lot of them. But it really excels at that camera work. There's especially a really good shot when Thomas is looking between the trucks and the trucks just always like partially obscure him, then open up, then obscure him. It, it, they do brilliant camera work and that creativity is uh, what I'm sort of rewarding it for there. So five out of ten from me. I think I was being a little bit cruel. I'm going to bump mine up to a four out of ten. Oh, see... There, there, there is a heart. Your, your heart grew four sizes this day, Parry. Mm, yeah. Um, no, actually, you know what? 3.5. No. 3.5. Okay. <laughs> so let's settle on that because I'm thinking to myself, yeah, this is not as great as some of the series one to seven stories, but is it better than some of their worst stories? And it's like, you know, I'm kind of in two frames of mind here. Which leads us to Percy's new whistle. Yeah, well, new whistle, so to speak. So what ha- what happens? Yeah, it's, it's it's not a new whistle. It's his old whistle, but he's having fun with it in a new way. Well, yes. And of course, this episode is called Percy's new whistle. And in the clip we're about to hear, Percy is dropping off some trucks for our old foes, Ari and Bert. One day, Percy took some trucks to the smelter's yard. He whistled hello to Harry and Bert. But Harry and Bert laughed. Caught out a whistle, chortled Bert. Just listen to this. Diesels can do everything better than steamies, they sneered. My whistle's as good as your horns, puffed Percy crossly. Just you wait and see. Now, this is actually the first instance of the word steamy in the show. Yes, it is. I wanted to raise this point with you, Connor, because up until now, we've referred to engines like Thomas and Percy and James and so on, referred to as steam engines, and characters such as Boko and Salty referred to simply as diesels. This is the first time that Thomas and co. have been given a chummy nickname shall we say. Yeah, steamies, which is sort of used as a almost derogatory term from the diesels. Yeah, it's kind of disparaging when people like Ari and Bert and later a certain other character say it. Whilst there is conflict between steam and diesel, 
it is quite a beautiful day on Sodor because it's winter and we always love our winter. That we do, yes. If you've been listening to our podcast in the past, you will know how much we love our winter scenery. It's because we're Australian. We don't get the snow. No, well, we do get it. We just don't get it as widely as you would in, say, Illinois or Switzerland or... Antarctica. Antarctica. Yes, that's a good yeah. example. Thank you, Connor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this is the first winter-themed story we've had since, what was it called? Not So Hasty Puddings in Series 7? Not So Hasty Puddings, yep, Series 7. And if you remember us talking about that, Denim and I were were not fans, rather, because of those grey skies. They really, you know, cast a dour mood over proceedings, whereas here we've got the blue skies in the background, and it's... Everything's so much brighter and cheerier and happier. But anyhow, on with the story. Uh, Connor, you lead us off. What happens in Percy's new whistle? It starts off with something that we haven't seen for a while. And that is, it starts off like plenty of railway series stories with an explanation on like railway practices. Specifically, an explanation on horns and whistles and how they're used to warn people and to Mm -hmm. be safe. And this leads in to Arian Burt making fun of Percy's whistle, and then Percy later on practicing really hard to get a really loud whistle. That indeed. And once he's perfected his loud whistling, he returns to... Now, remind me, Connor, is it the Hmm. quarry or the smelters that he's returning to? And that is the thing with this episode. (laughs) So, in the clip that you heard, it goes, one day Percy took some trucks to the smelter's yard. It's not the set for the smelter's yard, it's the quarry. But hey, maybe they just got the set mixed up. Okay, maybe they just switched words around. But then it goes in the same story, later, Percy went back to the quarry. Where Ari and Bert of the Sodor Ironworks now apparently work. I don't know what has happened with this story. James Mason, who wrote this, I don't know whether he had one idea, then changed the setting halfway through and forgot to write something down, but that really infuriates me because there's a clear contradiction. But yes, it's not the the only sort of goof that we get because as Percy returns to the quarry, uh, he, he blows his whistle and Ari and Bert shake in fear and their eyes spin around. But they're shaking before he even blows his whistle. <laughs> They, they they couldn't have cut it earlier, could they? They couldn't have just added a little extra clip to make it work. They couldn't just have the whistle sound effect go for longer. Maybe they could have slowed it down slightly. Slowed the image of Percy coming in to greet them down, and then that would have masked their mistake. And then Percy goes off the rest of the day, whistling loudly to everyone scaring them. He causes Bertie to crash. Yeah, but Bertie, poor Bertie runs off the road. He skids around a little bit and then he ends up in the snow. As a result of his menacing ways, uh, Percy gets a dressing down by his friend Thomas in the sheds that night. And the next day, Percy is on his best behaviour and he decides, you know, I'm going to give it one more go. And he decides to do one more loud whistle believing that nobody's in earshot. And yes, Connor, it results... Which results in a series of ex-Machina Rubik Goldberg systems where 
Trevor is is getting hay for the sheep and there's an explanation as to why the sheep need the hay in the winter. And he, and he backs away and he knocks the log and the log rolls down the hill and it picks up snow and it picks up more and more snow until it creates a giant snowball which crashes into Percy and therefore the snowballs shall become the norm for winter accidents from here on out. Mm, poor old Percy. What is it with large round objects and Percy? I mean, first the boulder and now the snowball. There, there is a pattern occurring after seven series and now the eighth. Thomas and Sir Topham visit him. Topham gives him a bit of a dressing down and goes, you know, whistles are to be used for safety only. Later, Percy's going down the line. He he exits through a tunnel and there's a massive avalanche there. Surprisingly, he doesn't crash into it. But he hears Thomas coming along and he knows what he has to do. And for safety, he blows his whistle loud and proud and saves Thomas to end the day. Mm, and apparently that was the first time he'd blown his whistle all day because in Angelus's narration he said that Percy hadn't blown his whistle at all. And it's like, well, hold on. If whistles are a safety thing, a safety feature for these trains, shouldn't they be utilising them anyway, regardless of whether they're loud or not? Yeah, because, like, I mean, there are several whistle codes to use. It's like, okay, two, two whistles mean... I'm going now. Three whistles mean reversing. This is all approximate, of course. Whistle when you're coming to a level crossing. It's a bit hard to believe that Percy had spent the night somewhere far away from everyone else and didn't come across any crossings or stations or anything to use his whistle. Yes, and of course, if we recall back to Series 3, there were always these two quick whistles whenever the engines would go or stop. Right, so clearly the writers in the past knew about Railway Protocol, but obviously it's been lost on this new pool of talent they've brought in. Whilst this episode does have a few editing mistakes and a few questionable story elements, I actually think that this story is really good at taking advantage of the longer runtime. I would agree there, honestly, and... I do actually enjoy this story. I mean, it's not perfect. Obviously, there are lots of flaws and errors here and there. But there is an appeal to it. And it's not just a winter setting, right? There's a cheekiness and a naivety, like in a good way, to Percy's character, which, again, recalls him as he first came to the island, that kind of mentality. But the point is, Connor, that I do really enjoy this story more than probably any other in series Eight, which which is a bit of a spoiler. I'm sorry for everyone listening, but yeah, I've got to call it as I see it. And I think Percy's new whistle is probably my favourite of this series. But were it not for those issues such as Quarry or Smelter's Yard or that weird little bit of editing or how they seem to have forgotten the importance of whistles and how often they do use them, this episode would be a 10. Okay, well, what are you giving it as of now, Connor? As of now, it's fantastic, but due to those few little qualms about it, I'm going to make it an eight. Okay, then. Um, I'm actually going for a five. Your favourite episode of Series 8, and it's a five. Yes. I feel this does not bode well. (laughs) No, it does not bode well for the remaining... What is it, 18 other TV stories that we've got to cover? I, I've, ma- I've made my points 
here, you know, over why I enjoy it, why I don't enjoy it. But I think the reason, the main reason why it's so low is because there's that nostalgia which ties me to the earlier seasons, which I love so much. And uh, trying to, I'm still trying to adjust to that new format. You know, it'll probably take me until... Uh, what series 12 and by that time there will have been changes again and then i'll have to adjust to those and then series 13 will come along and i have to adjust to those changes and then yeah i don't think i'll truly be satisfied with how this show is produced until yeah andrew brenner takes over his showrunner honestly so yeah, we've got nine more seasons of Right on Track until that happens, people. Yeah, yeah, that that's fine. After that, all engines go. I'm sure we would all be great and cheery for all engines go. Oh, yeah, all engines go. Oh, just how we are looking forward to reviewing that. <laughs> um, but with that, that brings us to the end of the reviews for today where we covered Thomas and the Tuba and Percy's new whistle that is correct and in our next episode i won't be here but we'll have m taking my place and they will be reviewing alongside connor thomas to the rescue and henry and the wishing tree so until then it's bye from me parry and a see you later from connor Hi, I'm Ken Bianco Jr. from Train World, where we have the greatest selection of model trains and train sets. We also are proud to carry Bachman's full line of Thomas & Friends products. With a large variety of different brands and scales, we have the best items for your model train collection. You can find Train World on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can see our latest products and even be invited to all our events like Thomas Tuesdays. Visit trainworld.com today to find your next addition to your model railroad journey. Thanks, Connor and Perry, for those enjoyable views on the first two episodes of Series 8. We shall have to see what the rest of the series has in store for us. Now it's time for Loco Nation with Tom Denham. A brand new segment of Ride on Track, where you will visit railways around the world and hear about the locations that inspired the Reverend W. Audrey. This week, he'll be taking you to England, to the Port of Par Railway. Our journey today goes to England, Cornwall, in the village of Par, which is Cornish for Creek or Harbour. Parr was initiated in the second quarter of the 19th century to serve mining industries in the area. In the final quarter of the 19th century, copper was starting to go out of fashion as other minerals proved to be a lot cheaper to mine for. It was around this time that a mineral called kalionite was starting to become popular, otherwise known as China clay. Their trucks are filled with China clay. It is needed for pottery, paper, paint, and many other things. This is a soft white clay mineral, which is acquired for various uses in everyday items and also makes up about 50% of paper. It was because of the demand of mining industries like China Clay that a railway line was built for the Par Harbour.
1841, Pass saw its happenstance in rail when Joseph Treffery opened a tramway, aptly named Treffery's Tramways. A local landowner and entrepreneur, Treffery built a series of tramways in Cornwall that all serviced the China clay and granite mines. It opened in 1855 and replaced the canal network that was previously there. However, Treffery's tramways were taken over by Cornwall's Mineral Railways in 1874 as it upgraded to using steam locomotives instead of Treffery's horse-drawn vehicles. It was a few years later that a new branch line was built under the Cornish Main Line to service a new China Clay processing plant. The line had tight radius curves and only allowed for smaller engines to be able to run on the line. The first locomotive to service the line was a vertical boiler engine that arrived in Par in 1912. It was taken out of service in 1927 and was replaced by a sentinel known as Toby. No, not that Toby. It was an 040 wheel configured vertical boiler engine, but designed and built in a much more sleeker fashion. The remains of the first engine, however, would prove useful in the construction of the third locomotive, which was put together by the harbour staff and fondly known as Punch. W.G. Bagnall delivered a larger 040 ST locomotive, this time with a horizontal boiler, to replace its predecessor 10 years later in 1937. It arrived without a name, but was called Judy, in keeping with the theme of puppets. It wasn't until 1954 that a very similar locomotive would come along, which was named Alfred, after the harbour manager, Alfred Truscott, to work alongside Judy. The Treffery Estate then leased the harbour to the English China Clay Railways in 1946 and later sold to them in 1964. In this period, it operated under the name of the Port of Palm. Alfred and Judy were tasked to shunt and pilot the port for their main working life. Both engines were designed with low sitting bodies to not only assist them around the tight corners, but to also fit under very low standing bridges in the area. It was on a day in 1966 that one Reverend Wilbert Audrey visited the Port of Palm, where he sought inspiration from Alfred and Judy, as well as the China clay industry that the line was initially built for. Mainline engines would be published later that year in August and introduced readers to Bill and Ben. Listen, he doesn't know your twins, so we'll take your names and numbers off, and then this is what we'll do. Bill and Ben chuckled with delight. Come on, let's go, they said eagerly. Bill and Ben, as characters in the Railway series and the early Thomas TV series, remain fairly faithful to their real-life counterparts. They are responsible for running the line at the China Clay Pits on Edwards Branch Line, as well as delivering trucks to the harbour. They too also cleverly have their names derived from particular puppets. 
Throughout their history, their pioneering character trait was their mischievous nature and their scheming impulse to play tricks on the other engines. Hello, Speedy Wheels. How about a race, Connor? You and me. Maybe if I only used one piston. One piston? Nonsense. You go as fast as you like. You'll be surprised how fast I am. Very surprised. In the Railway series, they have appeared in three books and in the TV series have been in 41 episodes. Stop! You're making me giddy. The two engines gazed at him. Are there two of you? Yes, we're twins. I might have known it. Judy was taken out of service in 1969. And during that time, the route between Power and Fowey was closed and converted into a privatised two-lane road for the English China Clay Company. The British railway connection to the Cornish mainline was closed around this time too. Alfred retired from service in 1977, but the harbour lines still remain present and are run by DB Schenker locomotives. But what of Alfred and Judy? Alfred was soon fitted with vacuum brakes to ensure it could run passenger trains and was bought by the Bodmin and Winford Railway. At one moment in time, he was painted in a yellow livery rather than his green, so he could match that of his fictional counterparts, which enticed younger fans of the books to invest in the opportunity to visit real-life steam. Judy was kept in an engine shed for a period of time not long after her retirement, and then became a static display in Devon. It wasn't until 2004 that a heritage lottery fund of £50,000 was invested into a restoration. After many hours of labour in October 2008, she was able to move on her own steam again. Both engines are now happily operating and can be visited at Bodmin in Cornwall today. If you would like to find out more about Alfred and Judy or the operation of the Bodmin and Wenford Railway, you can visit bodminrailway.co.uk. That was the very first instalment of Loco Nation. Thanks, Denim, for teaching us about Port of Par Railway. It sounds like a lovely place. We've reached that point where we showcase music from the Thomas community. This week's selected piece is titled Annie and Clarabelle from Luke Pickman.
That was Annie and Clarabelle by Luke Pickman. Such a beautiful melody for Thomas's favourite carriages. Next up is the model train corner with Lachlan, where he will be taking a look at the Backman Thomas model. Hello everyone, I'm Lachlan. Uh, I uh, am going to be your resident model railway enthusiast, tip giver, and other things, I guess. We're going to be looking at a, a very special model to start off with, but before we get into that, I might give you a little bit of an introduction into who I am and how I've come to be on the podcast with Tom, Parry, Tom Denham, and uh, Connor. So like many people, and including probably all the hosts on this podcast, my love of trains started with Tom's Tank Engine. Uh, that's probably more or, well, more or less why I'm here now, because I show an interest as, as well. It wasn't until my early teens that I had interest in model trains. I suppose a little bit earlier than that, because uh, I think it was for my seventh birthday, I received a uh, an American lifelike train for my seventh birthday, I think, and then another one later that Christmas, if I remember correctly. Much later in life, I did end up collecting a lot more, and I have quite a big collection. We'll, we'll touch on all of that, hopefully, all throughout this segment podcast series. To start off with, I think the first thing we should review together should be Thomas the Tank Engine from Backman. Thomas was a tank engine who lived at a big station. It looks almost identical to the one you will see in the TV series. Something that is quite interesting about the Backman one is that they are based on the actual TV series models, whereas compared to Hornby, which we might also touch on later, they were based either on the Reverend Wilbert Audrey's models that he used for his Farquhar layout, uh, and also the tooling that uh, Hornby had at the time, say for example with Thomas as the E2, they had they had an E2 but without the extended side tanks. Looking at the model, the model I have isn't just straight out of the box, I have altered this a little bit, so take this as you will. The Thomas model itself, it looks very nice, I remember it was shiny once. It comes like uh, with a gloss paint, but I've gone over that with a, a dull coat to make it look a little bit more accurate to so I think with some of the later seasons where they looked a bit more dull rather than glossy. Thomas's face unfortunately isn't all that accurate, but I think it was based on some of the early 2000s or even the late 90s artwork you see on like packaging and whatnot. Uh, the Wooden Railway logo comes to mind. For me however, I've ordered T-Doc faces from Shapeways uh, and painted them up and they look quite nice. I've kept the eye mechanism in, but I've removed the gears so that the eyes can't move. Yes, that's another thing as well. The eyes can move side to side. Uh, yeah, so I left the eye mech in so that the eyes could be held there. Um, unfortunately, between it, it's probably not any fault of the model. It's probably more the face mold, but the, there's a gap between the smoke box and the face. I suppose we could start off with the buffer beam. I've changed the buffers on this, Thomas, but the buffers that came with it looked a little bit cheap. They were a bit, they had that sort of low quality plastic look to them, but, but it's a simple fix. I got a, uh, I think it was a Parkside CCT van kit that comes with four metal buffers. And it's as simple as just removing the buffers that Thomas currently has and just slotting those in and they look way better. He was a very 
was a fussy little engine, always pulling coaches about, ready for the big engines to take out on long journeys. And when trains came in and the people had got out, he would pull the empty coaches away so that the big engines could go and rest. He had six small wheels, a short stumpy funnel, a short stumpy boiler and a short stumpy dome. He does have a great big black hook too, which I have seen people change out for more smaller and more finessed hooks, even with chains, which look very nice, which I have no, I'm, I'm still yet to do. Going up above his buffer beam, he does have a really big, chunky headlamp. I think one day I want to change this out and wire it up so that it's a working headlamp. I think that'd be cool. The lamp irons as well are quite thick and chunky. I suppose because this is a toy, some things need to be thicker than real life models so that they don't break as easy. If we move to the splashes on each side, there's a great big... Uh, if you look at Thomas himself, between the extended tank and the splasher, there's a void. This void is somewhat filled in on the Bachman toy. For reasons unknown, I'm not quite sure why. It could be quite easy just to paint it black and pretend it's not there, or I've seen people actually get there and cut it out and then fill it all back in so it looks a bit better. There are also shells just on their own without that sort of gap filled in that you can buy on Shapeways, I think. The boiler and the side tanks are done very nicely. The paint is very well applied. Although I do recommend giving it a spray coat of either gloss or matte coat to seal all that in because they can chip off quite easily. This is not my first rodeo with a Backman Thomas. <laughs> the gold whistles do have a bit of flashing around them, but I think they look quite nice. The whole cab assembly is slot into the top. You can pull it out and then that shows you all the wiring and the PCB board. Interestingly with this one, I got the DCC version. So he's DCC fitted with uh, an 18 pin uh, decoder. And I've, I've taken him to the club and all the people there often enjoy seeing Thomas running around the layout. Going back to the windows, they're all filled in, which is somewhat accurate to the show, but some people have drilled those out and made it so you can see through it, which I think is quite nice. Moving on to the bunker then, the coal looks quite nice. Uh, that pro could probably be unchanged. You don't need to modify that at all or anything. The windows at the back are half covered by the coal, which is a nice touch, I, I think. He doesn't have this lining on, on the back, on the back of the bunker. This was, I think this is like after season six or after Thomas and the Magical Railroad, he unfortunately lost that uh, lining on the back of his bunker. He does have a nice headlamp on the back though. It's weirdly, it's not red, showing the rear end of any sort of vehicle. The running board is done quite well. Like I said, it's, it's accurate to the TV series, so that means that the front buffer beam is uh, lower than the back buffer beam. I believe that was due to the accident Thomas had in the railway series, where he crashes into the station master's house. Just look what you've done to our breakfast. The wheels on the back from Thomas are quite nice. They, uh, they, do, they are a bit glossy. I could go over that again with the matte coat. The coupling rods are a bit chunky though, but like I said, this is supposed to be aimed at children and children probably can't deal with uh, smaller details, So, but that's a compromise I don't mind nonetheless. 
the couplings on it are the large D-shaped uh, tension lock couplers. I don't know how you can fit these out for like a NEM pocket at all, but it might be possible. All in all, Thomas, yes, he's a, he's a very handsome looking model. I do quite enjoy uh, sitting him on my shelf and looking at him sometimes. Sometimes I just sit him on my desk and I'll, uh, you know, I might add a detail here or there that I might have forgotten to add, or I'll look at pictures and whatnot and see how accurate the model actually is to the model used in the TV series. I can highly recommend this model to anyone who's either just starting out or even the most experienced modeler. You can't do model trains without having Thomas the Tank Engine. It's, it's literally a must, whether that be for yourself or your young kids. I've heard stories from my friends at the club that say, yeah, they, they, they bought Thomas the Tank Engine for their grandkids or something, which is very, very wholesome to hear. He runs quite well too. He uh, runs very smoothly for a sort of cheapish model, but also not. <laughs> Thomas can more or less be found pretty much anywhere. Any hobby shop, any website, you're, you're more than likely to find, maybe not Thomas, or you might find some of his friends, but either way, He's available pretty much wherever you can find him. Thomas does come in sets as well, which might be more recommended for people who are just starting to get into a hobby like this. It, it comes with like an oval of track. Uh, I know it comes with Annie and Clarabelle as well. Uh, I might do a separate review on both of them and discuss some of the modifications I've made. Here's a hint. I put a speaker in Clarabelle so she could play music. <laughs> but what else do I say about Thomas's tank engine? He's a very striking, very handsome model. He could probably add colour to any sort of layout. And I think with that, we'll finish it there. Backman, Thomas the Tank Engine. Thank you, Lachlan, for the first instalment of Model Train Corner. I look forward to seeing what you have in store for us next. And with that, we have reached the time where we must say goodbye for now. We really hope you enjoyed episode 61 of the Ride on Track podcast. You've been listening to Ride on Track. This podcast was hosted by Connor Jonas, Tom Parry, Lachlan Kyle, M. Taylor and Tom Denham. The audio producers for this podcast were Jason Evans, Harry Hughes, Ashley DeGroot and Frederick French Prouts. The supervising producers are Connor Jonas and Tom Parry. The executive producer is Tom Denham. Visit rideontrackpodcast.org for more information plus bonus material and be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook at facebook.com slash rideontrackthomaspodcast, on Twitter at ontrackthomas and Instagram at rideontrackpodcast.